Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. Spun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. Our guest today, Dr. Britton Dickinson, has quite a lengthy academic resume as that he's an educator associated with a whole slew of universities, including King's College and the University of Prince Edward Island, to name a few. But the reason why he's back by the woodpile today is one that Dr. Dickinson wrote his doctoral dissertation on the spirituality of C.S. Lewis and maintains the C.S. Lewis centric blog, A Pilgrim in Narnia at apilgriminarnia.com. Though we had planned to discuss some particular other aspects of Lewis's literary output, as is so often the case, we ended up on a completely different back road, prompted by Dr. Dickinson's mention of Lewis's often overlooked book, The Great Divorce. But first, we talk about how Dickinson met Lewis. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self, and that this process goes on very far inside. One's most private wishes, one's point of view, are the things that have to be changed. That's why unbelievers complain that Christianity is a very selfish religion. Isn't it very selfish, even morbid, they say, to be always bothering about the inside of your own soul, instead of thinking of humanity? I guess the first place to start, do you remember your first memory of C.S. Lewis or his writings? Well, there's the childhood one. Still today, I have this certain edition of Magician's Nephew, which in in the American versions of Narnia is the first book, and it's the the vision the the front cover where the children are flying on fledge or the the flying horse and they're off on their adventure and the magician's nephew and so I think it was the picture but that book stuck with me more even than Lion Witch in the Wardrobe, but then in the 1990s I went to Bible College late 90s and and so C.S. Lewis was just always around everybody was always talking about him. Mm-hmm. And I tried to read Mere Christianity a number of times, but I just never pulled it off. I just, <laughs> it's not that difficult, but I just, you know, I heard of all these people that changed their life and I kind of didn't, I don't know, it didn't drag me in. And huh. then it was finally when I was living in Japan about 15 years ago, uh, I was given a class, just gifted a English class and they handed me the curriculum and the curriculum was simply C.S. Lewis's obscure book called The Great Divorce. Oh, yeah. And they were on page one, and basically we were just reading it together with some advanced students. And, and that was where I began to kind of catch the vision of what Lewis was doing. Yeah. Wow. I got to ask, is C.S. Lewis popular in Japan, and, and how do they uh, take to him, do you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's intriguing because, I mean, Japan is, is intriguing in that it's an international... Wealthy, relatively wealthy, very culturally vibrant country, and with lots of people, and yet has sort of completely rejected many of the values of the West, even though they take up 
you know, they were important for technology and things like that after the war, they, they really re- resist a lot of things. And so what gets through is kind of a kind of interesting to me. And it, you know, Ella Montgomery and Anne of Green Gables, which is where I'm from here in Prince Edward Island, you know, that got through, you know, Anne is huge in Japan and continues to be. There's like a zombie manga and uh, short film series that that's somewhere in Japan. I haven't seen it. So there's so, a zombie version of Anna Green Gables. Yeah, well, it's not exactly zombie. It's sort of like a like a surrealistic death Anne of some kind, superhero. <laughs> anyway, it's it's manga. It's weird. Yeah, and uh, it's the new culture. And and Anne kind of represents. You know, for a while she, she one generation she'll represent. Uh, like family values and like connection and and uh, imagination in that very kind of conservative way and then the next generation will tuck it up and she's rebellious and spirited and so they, they move back and forth huh. and so this is in the they're in a bit of an and slash anti and face so um but it's like it's huge and so uh, C.S. Lewis hasn't gotten nearly that kind of connection in Japan, but there's this strong readership, uh, this strong interest in C.S. Lewis f- from the Narnian side. I don't know that his other books are very well known. And then I think missionaries and diplomats and English teachers use uh, C.S. Lewis's books in general to make connections. So give a brief account of where this journey or this relationship with a, of a dead guy named Jack, where it's led you, because it's obviously, I think, led you to some great other worlds, so to speak, both literal and figuratively. Yeah. You know, it's it's kind of funny, and, and I don't know that it's super wise for me to confess this, but, like, hmm, there are a lot of fans, right? Mm-hmm. You know, C.S. Lewis and Jared Tolkien, and then now pick your... You know, you know, Harry Potter studies is is largely made up of fans, readers, pe- people for, and many for whom that that book was transformative, uh, that series was transformative as a child, and so that's what we get. So when you read a book on C.S. Lewis, you'll often find in the first few pages sort of a conversion story to his his books. You know, like I first encountered Lewis, and then it you know tells the story of it, and so. I guess I don't really have that story. I didn't come, I didn't come to Lewis as a fan exactly. I came to Lewis because he was on my bookshelf and I knew his work and he was a great essay writer and imaginative writer. He was imperfect in a lot of ways that I liked. Like Narnia, I mean, Narnia is great. Uh, for, you know, for those who resonate with it, it's, it's amazing. But there are a lot of holes in Narnia. It's not always... A good editor would have would have helped, right. you know. Like you think about the first paragraph of *Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe*, and you know there were these four children, and I went to this house, and it's just sort of like a, a laundry list uh, writing, and then you finally start to get into it when they when they start uh, landing at at that mysterious house and exploring it, and and so I liked the porous nature, or the the kind of the the places where Lewis needed some people to dialogue with. And to me, I was always attracted by that. And at the same time, a few years ago, I was scouting around for a PhD topic. And I was in I was in some degree of trouble because I had picked, I thought, and this was 2009, 10, and 11, I did a bunch of work. And I thought, you know what the next big topic in uh, North American Christianity is going to be? It's going to be, it's going to be hell. 
there's going to be a full out debate and I lined it all out. And, and so I was ready to pitch my project. And then Rob Bell released this book called Love Wins in 2011 in the spring. Mm-hmm. And of course it was huge. And so it just like it proved me right, but it just stole my thunder. I was totally, <laughs> totally without a project now because he just basically took my project and ran with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he didn't plagiarize. He just he has no idea who I am, but it's just it emerged. And so I was complaining about this at a conference once and someone told me, you're doing it all wrong. Everything you're doing is wrong. And it's like <laughs> Moses's father-in-law Jethro, you know, like everything you do is bad. Uh, and, uh, and I said, why is that? Why am I doing it wrong? He's like, well, you can't ever, you can't study an emerging, something that's emerging. It's, you can never get your fingers on it. It's too slippery. It's like salmon in a, in a brook mm-hmm. and, uh, or salmon in a river, I guess. And so, uh, you know, he said, find a thinker that you can root to and that you, you, you're comfortable spending a decade with that you can be in conversation with. And then you'll have societies to join and people who are interested in what you have to say. Huh. And so that's what I did. I went and I read like I spent the year reading a dozen different thinkers that I thought were worthwhile spending time on. And and in the end, it was C.S. Lewis never bored me and always interested me and I thought there were problems and fun things to talk about and in the end you can pick up I don't know the silver chair or some weird sci-fi you know and just sit and read it for fun so that's that's where I ended up it's just to simply say that I actually came (laughs) I came with a buy like a like a goal to C.S. Lewis to help me dialogue with Christian faith in North America in this generation. And so I actually had something, um, a bias uh, or, or something that I wanted to see happen. Whereas other people just, you know, they love the guy and they just jump in. So I think that may be pure, but this also gives me a bit of distance, I think. so. Right. Do you feel like he has affected you in any way, like especially with matters of faith? Yeah, but not like... I don't know, you read Chuck Colson or, you know, these these superstars that read Mere Christianity and that's their conversion. So I didn't have that exactly. Right. It's kind of more in the way of he two two things. I think one, he he was able to give voice to things that were kind of intimate to me, but I didn't have language for. So like I wanted to explore as a as a, a believer I wanted to explore more than just truth, but I didn't think of like truth, beauty, and goodness as this triadem, as this uh, three-part kind of classical conversation about things. But that's what Lewis was, that's what was guiding C.S. Lewis. And so when I came to understand truth, beauty, and goodness in conversation with each other, in dance, and in a continual connection then i began to see that was what was in my heart as a writer as a teacher as a scholar uh, as a a student and friend i wanted not just truth or not just goodness or not just beauty but all three of those to mix together and so we see that i came out of a generation that only talked about truth that's all they were interested in and i teach these amazing students and they're really interested in goodness social justice you know, making the world a better place, neighborliness, that sort of thing. Mm. But I really, I came to see with Lewis that there's this, you really need truth, beauty, and goodness in concert with one another in order to have a healthy mind, a healthy heart, a healthy family and community. And and so that's a that's an example. He gave, he gave me voice. I didn't know how to talk about that before. 
And then the other one is more kind of individual. He really helped me recover a vision for, well, it's weird, a vision for heaven, I guess, but not just like as a distant place, but as as something that's implicated in the way we live today. Mm. Uh, and so I'm still working that one out. I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to do a sermon series at our church this year on it. And uh, I'm just a normal member, but they let me have the pulpit from time to time to try and work out like the way that the resurrection into life is then tied back to where we are today in this very moment and how those things are connected. So that's that one's a longer one. That'll take me a while to work out. But but yeah, so that's two examples, I guess. Yeah. The trouble is that they're so quarrelsome. As soon as anyone arrives, he settles in some street. Before he's been there 24 hours, he quarrels with his neighbor. Before the week is over, he's quarreled so badly that he decides to move. Very like he finds the next street empty, because all the people there have quarreled with their neighbors and moved. So he settles in. If by any chance the street is full, he goes further. But even if he stays, it makes no odds. He's sure to have another quarrel pretty soon, and then he'll move on again. Finally, he'll move right out to the edge of the town and build a new house. Okay, so my mind is going in a maybe different direction than what we had talked about, but let's just go with it, if you don't mind. So you had mentioned the great divorce, and you also mentioned uh, Rob Bell. And this topic has been on my mind, and it's also come up on the podcast quite a bit about uh, these different movements that are happening in Christianity. And uh, so I first want to talk about my memory of the great divorce was it was about a bus trip to hell or a purgatory type of place. Mm. And of course, I want you to correct me because it's been a while since I read it. But the one thing I took away from it was all these people were given a chance to, I guess, repent or uh, accept God and in the end, I think very few actually did. They were still kind of digging in their heels. Maybe there was still some pride issues or there was still some inability to admit their mistakes. And so, the, you know, the bus went on, I guess, to its final destination. But so, first of all, correct me if I got any of that wrong. And then uh, after that, then I have another question. Yeah, no, it's it's actually great because to me, the great divorce is the Cinderella story. Like when people ask me, what is C.S. Lewis's best book or best fiction I'll, I, I'm not sure that it's the great divorce but that's what I say <laughs> because it's the least uh, least well known and uh, not everybody most people haven't read it mm-hmm. and it's kind of an accidental book it was written as an experiment thought experiment for a small magazine and then put together for a book I think it'll be a Cinderella story and C.S. Lewis readers but it's taking a while mm-hmm. most people would say till we have faces his literary fiction or Paralandra the second space book like as best books but for me it's the great divorce so imagine guy wakes up and it, it's kind of lewis's character wakes up in a dark dim suburban neighborhood lewis hated suburbs mm-hmm. and uh, he thought they were all kind of hell-like or purgatorial anyway and, <laughs> and he gets in line and there's some fighting and stuff he finally gets on a bus with all these kind of quarrelsome people and uh, the bus kind of goes up into the sky and then lands in this bright uh, super huge uh, plateau uh, next uh, with mountains in the distance and then what begin and then a whole bunch of like giant godlike spirits come galloping in to encounter each of the people 
And each person has something in themselves that they've attached to that prevents them from being able to go on to the great mountains, to the place of joy. And so the world, because of this attachment, the world is, is too hard for them. So the grass is too hard to walk on. It it, it hurts the feet, and uh, dewdrops from the trees, you know, threaten to shatter your body because they're so hard. The leaves are made of gold, but you couldn't lift the leaves because they're just far too heavy. A single leaf is weighs more than your entire body, and so the world's just too hard and and difficult. The light is too bright. Everything is dangerous, and in that dangerous beauty, uh, each person is then faced with their central question of what it is that that's really most important to them and then each person has to consider whether or not they're going to give up that most important thing um, so it could be pride it could be lust uh, but it's often something kind of more intimate and difficult like you know a controlling nature when it comes to their spouse mm. or they had one child die and then they could have buried their heart with that child and, and then and punished their the rest of their family, their other children and spouse for all the years that came after. Someone might have fallen into a kind of laziness or, or someone else is an artist and he, he's so attached to his own name as an artist that he, you know, he can't actually see light. He can't do art. And so things like that. And so each person has to crack that open. And when that's exposed, then they respond to it in different ways. Some flee back to the bus and then some continue in conversation to, to maybe toughen up to get to the mountains. So that's the premise. It's kind of a weird philosophical novella uh, that, that I think is beautiful and, and, and brilliant. So I'm taking it that it was a metaphor for things that separate us from God or, or things that cause us to maybe not be in full communion with him maybe yeah yeah so it comes down to the the central idea that lewis had was if you grow up in like church in north america you're probably going to hear something like you know don't do these things whatever these things are you know like drugs and sex and rock and roll and genocide and you know, <laughs> you know voting for a certain party whatever right? yeah there's these certain things that are just bad they're just bad bad Right. And so you don't do these bad things. Everyone's heard better than that and worse than that. But I think that's a general theme that comes out. And for Lewis, that wasn't it at all. He didn't understand it that way. Uh, the point isn't that, like his point in Screwtape Letters, for example, which is advice from a senior demon to a junior demon about how to get people into hell. It's not to get them to do bad things. It's to keep them focused upon themselves to the point where all they see in the world is themselves. Like a form of idolatry. Yeah, that's right. So you wrap the person in habits and sin and shame and distraction. You'll think about somebody who complains, right? Well, you just keep wrapping them up in the injustice and unfairness of their world to the point that they're no longer a complainer. They're just a complaint. They're just a completely embodied... <laughs> self-involved individual right? <laughs> and so lewis keeps turning this up to upside down so for example in screw tape letters you know in, when you're talking about gluttony well it's world war ii he's writing in who's a glutton right like there's no food right <laughs> like you know london's being bombed he's got children living in his house from london because it's unsafe for them 
Uh, he's off in, in the countryside near Oxford. And gluttony doesn't make any sense to World War II, and yet he still wants to talk about it. And what he does instead is picture this highly refined individual uh, who says, you know, like when you bring her a, a, a large plate of food at a restaurant, she says, oh, no, that's too much. You know, you know, send it away and give me only a quarter of that, you know, and, and sends the, the servants off doing it. And then and all she remembers is the time when you could finally get good tea. You can't get good tea anymore and where bread used to be better. And, you know, all I want is this and that. And so there's still Lewis's Screwtape's argument is that there's still a delicacy of the stomach that is gluttony, even if it doesn't have a lot of food. Mm. Um, and it's this neat kind of upside downness that shows that actually it's a service to one's own comfort or attitude or habits or predilections or, or prejudices. That's the, the best way to get people into hell. Screwtape says, yeah, you can do wars and you can do violence and you can do all these things. But, you know, those those are fun from a demonic perspective, but they're not effective because in a war, like someone who's about to jump out of a foxhole will jump out of the trench and then run across a field at the enemy uh, with no hope of surviving. Well, that person is spiritually closer uh, you know, to, to understanding God and themselves than at any other point in history. Wars are deadly when it comes from a demonic perspective. Um, they're just entertaining. Whereas if you can get people stuck in their everyday lives, attracted uh, to whatever it is they're attracted to, and then bend them until there's nothing else in the world, that's how you win. Wow. So that the person can't see there's any other any other thing in the universe that matters except themselves. Even of his sins, the enemy does not want him to think too much. Once they are repented, the sooner the man turns his attention outward, the better the enemy is pleased. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. So, there's the debate, and you, you, you brought up hell. And I guess I'm a little less interested whether it's what, what's in the afterlife and all that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. the thing that always struck me is, like, I believe that we create our own hells on earth a lot of times. Or mm-hmm. a lot of times we separate ourselves from God by our own actions. So a lot of times in this debate between progressives and conservatives, you know, the progressives will often say, well, how can a God send someone to hell? And I'm more intrigued by the fact that I'm usually my own worst enemy, and uh, it's not that God's doing anything necessarily, although we can talk about that too if you want. But um, what are your thoughts on that and that debate? And There's always something under the skin, maybe that we're not even realizing that we're, we're talking about, but like the bigger uh, issues. And Yeah. Uh, so w- what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I guess th- three kind of ways into it. One is... Lewis's own thought was that hell is a kind of self-creation mm-hmm. in the way that I described, where a person, uh, like in The Great Divorce, George MacDonald, Lewis's mentor, shows up to be his mentor in this uh, sort of purgatorial space, this great plateau of heaven. And it's like sort of heaven's front gate, basically. And uh, he says, you know, in the end, there's really only two kinds of people. People... Uh, for whom God says to them, your will be done, or people who say to God, your will be done. 
so basically people who who god leaves over to the to their own desires and and wills and intentions or people who throw those wills and intentions back to god and so lewis that's how lewis understood hell was so at one point in the problem of pain he says that hell's doors are locked from the inside Mm. uh, which is an intriguing vision now he never tells us whether you, you can like you can open the door i guess because he doesn't think i don't think he thinks of hell as quite existence in any kind of parallel way to heaven or anything it's you get lost in yourself until the point that there's essentially no existence left and so that's his understanding of hell and but when it comes to like us and in debates it's it's a it's a tough thing like as as a as a theologian i would say as my second point that i think this we have to be careful about how we talk about these things because scripturally speaking we don't have a ton to go on mm -hmm. and so what i see is sort of two camps basically that often happen one camp says well you know well these passages talk about hell and here's here here it is it's just really lined out like this and another camp that says, well, let's look at the character of God. And uh, the character of God teaches us these things. And so whatever else happens, like it all has to sit together. Like anytime we slice off part of that, like if you leave the character of God out of what you're thinking about, well, you're in, you're in, some, <laughs> you're in some deep trouble. You're just basically lining up Bible passages as if there were Scrabble tiles to spell the word that, that happens to fit your ideas, right? So, but if you kind of leave, you know, scripture uh, and Christian historical teaching behind, you're going to end up in your own little camp by yourself, historically speaking. Right. You know, and the world will look back at you and say, oh, that was an interesting little ghetto, uh, <laughs> kind of a neighborhood of American or whatever thought, you know, but it's not much more important than that. That's my, I know that's not an answer. No, <laughs> I didn't okay. give an answer or anything, but, but that's the thing, I think the principle to hold together. And the third thing is there's a new reality. Like it used to be, I think that preachers felt they had to talk about hell because like you had to awaken reality. Is that, is that fair? Would you... Would I would you, say, yeah, out of compassion, they thought they were helping people avoid going there. Yeah, it's kind of like those healthcare workers, like in different crises, you know, like, uh, you know, I think of the HIV AIDS crisis, you know, and those healthcare workers that would have people come into their clinics and they felt they had to drop the, the heavy news of, look, you, you live this way, you're an intravenous drug user. Sure. If you continue to live this way, this is what your destiny holds, that right. kind of thing. And so I think it was that kind of healthcare compassion I think pastors had. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the, the the world has shifted in such a way that, and I'm being rhetorical, that hellfire preaching, I suspect, sends more people to hell than it would save them from hell. Our culture just can't, it will talk about hell once you have a nuance, but it, it, it can't. It, it can't see hell the way that backwoods preachers and, and suburban preachers have talked about it. They can't see that as being anything to do with who God is right. or what my life is like. And so this hellfire preaching creates this cultural imagination of what Christianity is that makes people reject it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's actually dangerous for that one particular movement to, to, to continue. So I think we actually have a cultural caution that's completely opposite from like 100 years ago with the log churches and stuff on the frontier. Mm -hmm. That was one cultural moment. We're in a different one. And it's, it's time to address that, I guess. So when you said you were working on a, like a potential thesis uh, mm. about hell, was that it in essence? 
Well, yeah, no, my, my interest was, was less the truth or the ideas of hell or heaven. And really, my interest was American Christian culture. Mm. And in my reading of things, it looked to me like there was shaping up to be a, a collapse of confidence in evangelicals mm. as a whole which is the largest component of American religion, really. And it looked like that was coming. Uh, as, I was, as I was watching things in, in the late George Bush Jr. and early Obama era, it looked to me like evangelicalism was going to go into crisis mm-hmm. and collapse, and, then, and, and I didn't know if it was going to redefine itself or not. And what I, my parallel was it looked to me like the 1920s, Whereas in the 19-teens, American fundamentalism in, had these great intellectual movements out of like Princeton and places like that, lots of pamphlets and revivals. And uh, it was that the, the Pentecostalism was beginning. It was this kind of huge moment. But in the 1920s, there was this huge crisis that took place, largely around the Scopes monkey trial. Right. All of a sudden, you know, conservative Christianity was looked pretty dumb. Uh, you yeah. Know? And then what do you have happen? Almost immediately you have the Great Depression and then you have uh, World War Two. So like you basically you have an irrelevant movement and it's unfair because probably millions of Americans were helped by little local churches through the 30s. Right. But that disappeared. It became irrelevant. And so conservative Christianity was in this this difficult spot and then it found new energy after world war ii uh with certain movements that we now call evangelical you know billy graham and mm-hmm. and, and that whole deal and so i thought the same thing was happening at the beginning of the 2010s in america and i thought it was going to happen on two issues one was was hell and generally the question of violence and then the second one was sexuality or homosexuality specifically was how i would put it then and I think that I'm right, <laughs> but your current political situation has a, has really, I think, put a fine point on it in a, in a way that I couldn't have anticipated then. So I might I might be wrong, but I I, 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 I suspect that in 2035, we'll look back and call the 2010s like the moment that evangelicalism in America uh, stopped and had a had a crisis moment that it had to decide whether or not to move past. They told me in the nursery that if I were good, I'd be happy. And they told me at school that Latin would get easier as I went on. After I'd been married a month, some fool was telling me that there were always difficulties at first, but with tact and patience I'd soon settle down and like it. And all through two wars, what didn't they say about the good time coming? If only I'd be a brave boy and go on being shot at. Do you have any thoughts on Rob Bell? So, I mean, Rob Bell stole my thunder, mm-hmm. my academic project, but it wasn't his fault. Yeah, I have, I have lots of thoughts on on Rob Bell. I, I guess I would like to spend an hour or two with him, mm-hmm. which is an ironic thing to say since he gives out an hour or two on these free podcasts that he does. So, I mean, he's there, and yet I still feel like there's a little distance. Yeah, I've read all of his books except the marriage one. Uh, only simply because I haven't found it yet. 
I think he's creative. I think he's visually smart. I think he's a, a great parable teller. Uh, his his Numa series is a are gorgeous parables. I think uh, great little sermonettes, uh, and uh, and I think he uh, he shows uh, very specifically, like if you ask what is it that young urban American Christians are thinking, I think. Rob Bell's books are the best way to capture that. Maybe add a little social justice like Shane Claiborne style or something, right? You know, whether he's right on everything is a different question, but he certainly is a great canary in the mine, finger on the pulse of American thought that way. Is that is that what you read too? Or I feel like the progressive reaction to the evangelicalism is totally understandable. And I think the evangelicals are partly to blame and me being part of that world at times in my life I you know I feel like I've probably contributed to that as well I think it's a good time to people like Rob Bell or I think he's good to read because you can help people understand why people are leaving the church and maybe what we've done wrong traditional Christians the character of the conversation will influence the characteristic of the conversation Mm -hmm. so I guess that's the same as the, you know, the medium is the message, the Marshall McLuhan idea, right? Yeah. Is that, you know, why, like, uh, you know, American evangelicalism was birthed out of certain things, but, you know, colleges and seminaries, so it's educational uh, magazines and journals, so it's literary, as well as, uh, what's her name, Pinker, that wrote the prayer book and things like that, Ruth Pinker, and then, uh, and then, and then finally media, right? Billy Graham mm-hmm. was a media star. Um, and so it's a media-connected movement. So those characteristics are still not not just kind of features of North American evangelicalism, but actually are somehow built into the character of it. it it's a it's part of the nature of, of of things. And so so I think we always need to be sensitive to to the way that we live and grow as people because um, we seal things in for the future. Uh, you know, America is founded on by a document, mm-hmm. right? I don't know, like, I mean, I guess the Magna Carta, right? Like, that will always affect the ethos, the feeling, the personality of American culture. Right. Just that one reality. So if you run a presidency, if you run a White House by Twitter, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, a, it's very pointed, right? Like, very specific, but that will always affect the character. Right. Of the presidency, right? Christianity Today last month had an article, uh, same as it did in the late 90s, supporting impeachment of the president, then Bill Clinton, now uh, Donald Trump, uh, then a Democrat, now a Republican. You know, it's just part of the culture of the thing, right? Mm-hmm. And that one article, maybe as, as by Mark Galley, maybe as effective in defining the future of evangelicalism as Rob Bell's Love Wins back in 2011. Huh. Uh, maybe one of those uh, kind of bellwether moments, if I can if I can use a, a pun like Rob Bell there. So, uh, you know, it's 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 divisive, but that's that's actually the point. Billy Graham wasn't the leading thinker of the post World War II age, but when he says Christianity Today is going to be progressive on social fronts but conservative on theological fronts, that is a divisive statement. Um, that defined that magazine and evangelicalism for the next 60 years. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I feel like, especially if someone's doing their grad work about this time period, you know, 50 years from now, mm. very possible Rob Bell will be a source material and like maybe that essay you're talking about as well. Just how we mentioned off recording, you know, that Henry Fosdeck's, you know, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? It was a, yeah, a, right. a very famous essay that, you know, is still uh, read today. And there's others on the other side of that. No, well, it's, it's funny you said, you know, Henry Fosdick, who became kind of a symbol in fundamentalism and evangelicalism, is sort of this, you know, terrible figure or whatever, right? Right. right. But it's intriguing, you know. I heard a a story from Eugene Peterson. I I, um, I was one of his uh, t- teachers for his online classes at Regent College. I st- I still am, although he's passed away. And he talked about somebody going and interviewing Fosdick and how spiritual and how interested in prayer he was. You know, and wow. how generous in his office, and uh, and then going back and rereading and seeing um, great things there, even as a conservative evangelical, right? So it's just funny how things kind of, you know, shift. You know, when you pull out of the middle of the fire, <laughs> you can kind of see the the images are a little different. I don't know. I I mix well, my metaphors there, but yeah, yeah. Sorry, I mean, just like we're more than our tw- our tweets, or <laughs> we're far yeah. more than the limited words. Even an essay isn't going to capture the whole person. And a lot of times you're making a point. I'm very aware of that myself. Like sometimes I probably get carried away in my writings and I've betrayed my humanity in the process. That's right. You know, and it's interesting, you know, Mark Galley, who wrote that editorial, not so much against Trump, nothing, nothing political, but very personal kind of supportment of impeachment, very much similar to the the anti-Clinton editorial 20 years ago. You know, Mark Galley was one of the resistant points to Rob Bell and actually has a book called God Wins, mm-hmm. right? The good news is better than love wins as the subtitle. And it's a response <laughs> to Rob Bell's book, right? So, so it's an intriguing, like, third way that Galley's trying to shape uh, Francis Chan, who who sort of has disappeared and reemerged. Uh, he also wrote a book with a New Testament scholar responding and admitting that Rob Bell had a number of points that were kind of interesting. And so I don't I, I don't know if if like evangelicalism is a third way. So can there be a third way <laughs> in it? I suspect that what will emerge like in 2030 or 2040, we'll look back and, you know, the so-called ex-evangelical movement will have shifted away and and some of those people will be in mainstream churches or evangelical left churches and Mm -hmm. fundamentalism will have continued to get smaller and and more separate Um, but there will still be an evangelicalism that is holding together more tensions as it always has done right Um, you know like on for example pacifism and and war and violence evangelicalism's always held that together on women and, and and ministry uh, you know, that was a, a slow change, um, but is, is much more diverse than it had been, say, 40 years ago, or administrative structures has never been interested. So evangelicals are all, always holding things together. So I suspect that that's what we're going to see in 2035. But it's going to be, you know, a quarter of the American people or 18 or 17 or 18 percent of the American people, not 40 percent of the American people. The old story. What you are comes out in what you do. A crab apple tree can't produce eating apples. As long as the old self is there, its taint will be over all we do. We try to be religious and become Pharisees. We try to be kind 
and become patronizing. Social service ends in red tape and officialdom. Unselfishness becomes a form of showing off. I don't mean, of course, that we're to stop trying to be good. We've got to do the best we can. But I do mean that the real cure lies far deeper. Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. To add to the confusion, I heard an American historian uh, in an interview with him where he's been commissioned to write some textbooks for uh, Christian schools about American history because the complaints that people were getting were either they were completely sanitized versions of American history or they were the opposite where, you know, everything's terrible. And the, one of the, the big contentions was that, uh, especially to the secular left, that Christianity in the 20th century was pretty much just evangelicalism, and that's it. That's the only sure. thing they were focused on. So Thomas Kidd was commissioned to like be truthful, but also you fill in the, the gaps where these other Christianities existed and uh, were more than just getting involved in politics, like the moral majority and things of that nature. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I see. Now, is, is, Kidd, is Thomas Kidd one of the Baylor professors? Yes, Alan that's J. him. That's him, yeah. Yeah, I think Alan Jacobs going from Wheaton to Baylor two or three years ago or whatever, or maybe longer, I think that's, I think you're going to see a shift. I suspect that if Wheaton was the 20th century kind of a strength of evangelicalism mm -hmm. at Wheaton and maybe Fuller, I think Baylor and uh, will be in the in the future. So I think I think it's trying to reposition itself that way. Unusually, it's an odd place, but yeah. But yeah, no, I, I see that. I think there's a, I think, but there's always that battle. Isn't, don't dominant cultures like always try to secure their dominance? Well, sure. Right? <laughs> isn't that a temptation? And you're a historian. Isn't that a temptation in well, history is to, to erase the voices on the outside? Isn't that, isn't that always there? Well, yeah. One of the spoils of war is to write the story. I, ca I can't remember how they phrase that. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think that's what makes the Old Testament so different, right? Is it's the loser's, it's the loser's narrative. Yeah. That's the Hebrew true. Bible, yeah, the Hebrew Bible is a story of, you know, sometimes there's escape and, you know, on, you know, there's this small sliver of kingship where there's this made this little space in the Middle East that worked for them, mm -hmm. but for the most part, it's a story of of being the smallest guy, right? And yet, you know, one of our richest, um, not just uh, spiritual foundations, uh, not just the the book of of Judaism, but also um, the foundation of Western culture, right? So, right. Uh, yeah, I know it's kind of a cool, that's a cool, cool contrast. No, it's it's beautiful because as uh, I heard a rabbi speak recently, and he mentioned that he, I for, totally had forgotten, but the word Israel means to wrestle with God. You know, how mm -hmm. many countries from out the gate are saying like, man, we got problems. You know, we're wrestling with the, our own deities, whereas you know most countries are founded on strength and how they're superior or whatever this completely opposite with the, the Israel, the Old Testament. They're constantly getting in trouble, and they're reporting their own sins, you know? You know, as you say that, it kind of makes me think, just based on what we've been talking about, like, you know, Jacob wrestles with God, Israel wrestles with God, but, like, instead of whom? Like, what's the exchange that took place there? And instead of wrestling with his brother, right? I w I'd be curious about what faith, public faith life, would be different in North America and and uh, Europe 
if the the wrestle that we have with our neighbors and our co-religionists, you know, our, our the people that sit in the pews with us and the people on the other side that are, you know, kind of enemies of thought, like if our wrestle turned to be to be wrestling with God instead of them, like what would the character of our faith and public life be at the end of that? I, I think it'd be a healthier public life. But but like Jacob, we may leave wounded, right? Did right. Jacob leave with a like a limp at the end of the battle? Well, just like you said that, you know, Hebrew culture really, in a way, was creators of Western civilization. I mean, if you take in the the other element that Mm. they often include is, you know, Greek culture, of course. And Socrates, he's nearly a saint at this point. And that was his biggest thing was always wanting to talk with people, argue with people in in a civil way. Of course, it got him killed in the end. But (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, I, I think that's in the back of our collective memories. And yeah. one thing I'll add to that was uh, when I was living in China, I had this said to me more than once. Many Chinese would say one of the, the best things about America was the, the fact was you guys talk about all your problems. Most cultures don't. And I didn't have never had thought about that because we're so used to, you know, someone doing something terrible and end up on Oprah Winfrey, whereas most cultures kind of sweep it under the rug. And of course, China being a, an extreme example where their history books don't even mention you know, the Tiananmen Square Massacre or other embarrassments. But yeah, that's maybe you're right. Collectively, that's in the back of our heads. I mean, like there's probably like something like 45 million evangelicals in North America, like in, in Canada and in the United States. And I'd be curious, like if if those folks spent just one year, you know, just uh, saying only encouraging words, understanding that, yes, truth has to be told, but we're just going to you know, we're just going to say encouraging words. Uh, I'd be curious what the result of that project would be. Well, um, if I can yeah. say, I, I think in, I'm sure it's the same in Canada, I would assume, if humans are humans. But, you know, I work with people. We have all kinds of different ways of thinking, both in religion or non-religion or politics. And, you know, most people get along. It's it's not that big a deal. You know, they, they may... <laughs> go to different churches on Sunday or they may vote different ways, yeah. but it never comes down to a knock down, drag out fight. But, you know, watching TV, that's not the case. It's civil war, buddy. I don't know. I, I would say we're better off than we would realize. Um, yeah. So maybe I just mean people with Twitter accounts. And, yes. <laughs> and, and news media hours. Um, maybe if I could go for a year without retweeting our articles that were critical of, of some something. Yeah, that would be interesting. But it, I mean, it's hard, like the, our heart for justice. Yes. I think if if you're a person of faith, there's always this prophetic tinge to, to your ideas. And we want to turn tables or, right, or, sh- you know, shout out Jeremiah's. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reality is, that was it Jeremiah or Ezekiel at one point basically just laid down on his side quietly for a year or something? I right? can't remember which one that was. Uh, yeah. So maybe there's a time to just, you know, our prophetic, instead of turning tables and shouting, you know, prophecies out at the at the wind, maybe there's times to lie down on our side, and allow our bodies to be the prophecy. I don't know. That's that, I know that sounds weird, but no, it, I think there's there's something to it. It's just like, well, th- to add to the the collective memories, I think you know the Holocaust in World War II. Mm-hmm. Is another factor and reason why to go back to your point about why don't we uh, not point out social injustice for a year? Because none of us want to be that person. Was like, 
why didn't you do something? Why didn't you say something? You know, mm -hmm. when this stuff was slowly happening, where the you know the Jews are being stripped of their rights and all that, and that's in the back of the minds of both left and right. I don't think that yeah. that's something that transcends political ideology. I think I think in a, in America, in Canada, what transcends left and right is a little different. But in America, you know, the question of freedom is is really one of those, right? Mm -hmm. And America is a past forward country. Right, it's rooted in uh, historical moments and certain ideas. Uh, those ideas live and transform and move into the future and to a forward moment. And and that tension, I think, is kind of I love that tension. It's it's a pale vision if you think of left and right just mm -hmm. as as uh, forward and past or something. I don't think that represents the parties well or those movements at their best. But I think it's it's such a cool tension that exists in the cultural ethos itself. But of course, that's what evangelical is is past forward spirituality, right? A rooted, forward looking theology. And so the fact that it comes out of America and Britain you know, is suspect in that kind of sense, right? Like, right. so it always has to be self-critical. We always be got to be saying, you know, what what is it about my culture that's that maybe making me not see what's going around on around me? Mm -hmm. And that culture could be something, you know, subcultural, like you know, my bridge club or my, you know, the <laughs> the skate park that I go to or something like much larger, like you know, I'm a a white male or I'm you know, uh, you know, an urban black professional or, you know, a woman who's a CEO or something like that. There's, a, there's always a crisis, I think. <laughs> so right. We're always self-critical. Every generation thinks, okay, this is it. Jesus is certainly coming back. <laughs> <Not like that. laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, the, like up to, up to the Civil War in the 19th century, it was pretty positive. Like Jesus was coming because it's getting better. Oh yeah, that's true. You're in Kentucky, you're in Kentucky or whatever, right? So like the Millennial Harbinger was one of those magazines that came out of there and in Millennial Harbinger, the Harbinger like we're holding you know the fort, that we're holding the party together uh, as we bring in the millennium of peace and goodness, right? And that was such a there's such an energy in, you know, the 18 whatever 30s to to, to 50s in, in the U.S., so it was forward motion. Well, so waiting, right? Uh, well, you know, and things like that. But. Yeah, that's true. But even after the Civil War, actually, the progressives, uh, yeah. they carried that mantle, and they, and they were saying, like, if only we continue down this road and we keep progressing, then we will make the you know the world habitable for Jesus, basically. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, think of the Chicago World Fair. Oh yeah. You know, which was, was it 1893? Uh, yes, it was right during uh, the crash. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, in the 1880s, we're tough economically, but 1893, it was filled, you know, this paper mache Chicago that was created, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, the world of the future, you know, just so hopeful. And the Parliament of Religions was there. And it was just this meant to be this kind of new day. And then just, you know, uh, 20 years later, uh, you know, the, the, the world's at war. A lot of that kind of liberal uh, hope of humanity, Darwinian hope, I guess, of humanity, yeah. collapsed in, in the fields of France and, and Africa and stuff, right? So uh, the, the, the air kind of went out of that movement, I think, in the 19-teens. Yeah, it came back eventually, but yeah, it took <laughs> it a break. We want to have hope, right? Like, Well, sure. You are much more likely to make your man a sound drunkard by pressing drink on him as an anodyne when he is dull and weary, than by encouraging him to use it as a means of merriment amongst his friends when he is happy and expansive. Never forget 
that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Well, to bring it back to whatever we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> so in Lewis's time, obviously, the, his generation of Christians were being tempted by modernity or maybe being made better by modernity, depending on your point of view. What's your recollection of Lewis's reaction to that, if anything? It's a super hard series of three lectures called The Abolition of Man. Uh, and, and I understand, like, if you're like me, I read it the first time and I read it again. They're only short. Maybe it takes an hour or two to read the three essays. And uh, and then I had to kind of reread them and reread them. I even listened to the audio le- version of the lectures to try and bring them into my to my heart and really understand them. We're, we're basically, what Lewis thought was that scientific progress is a good thing, but it comes with a, a temptation to use technology uh, to define and, and limit and control human life. And so he, he was one of the early users of the word technocracy. Huh. Uh, and that was his concern was not so much like he's writing kind of at the point in World War II where it's clear that the allies will win, but it's not clear how long the war will be or you know, what the character of that will be. And he probably has some hint of the kind of things we call the Holocaust, but not a very good hint of those things. Just rumors of eugenics and and uh, attack of people in Poland and Jewish people. And so he, he doesn't know the whole story, but he has a sense that the Allies will win. And so he writes this series warning that there's still a kind of authoritarian control that can happen but I suspect that our temptation is not going to be politics, Lewis says exactly, like ideology, but it will be technology. Um, and he uses birth control as an example, which um, most people wouldn't find that controversial today. But he would see at the time, he, he, he would see state conversations about birth control as a way of controlling, uh, making decisions for a future generation that, that they don't get the right to decide about. Um, uh, he also used the environment as an example. If you continue to treat the environment the way that it, it's being treated today, well, obviously you're going to create ecocultural disaster. So he uses these examples of making technological decisions today that affect a future generation, and he called that essentially an, a non-human move, taking the humanity out of the future people. So that was his. It's a very sophisticated argument, and it's worth spending some time on. But that was his worry interestingly coming out of world war ii was was that particular moment yeah and he captures it in fiction of course he wrote the lectures but then he wrote a weird dystopia sci-fi book called that hideous strength um and george orwell's 1984 is in some ways a response to lewis's that hideous strength there is always something they insist on keeping even at the price of misery there is always something they prefer to joy that is to reality. You see it easily enough in a spoiled child that would sooner miss its play and its supper 
then say it was sorry and be friends. Ye call it the sulks, but in adult life it has a hundred fine names. Achilles' wrath, Coriolanus' grandia, revenge and injured merit and self-respect and tragic greatness and proper pride. So you keep a blog. Tell folks about that if they want to learn about what you're up to. Yeah, sure. So I, I, I teach uh, locally and in some online schools, including um, – I t- mentioned Regent College. I do some of their uh, online teaching in Signum University, which is like a nerd MA program, like <laughs> – you know, you know, Tolkien studies and Germanic philology and like fantasy studies and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I do those sorts of things. And for, you know, for eight years now, I've had a blog called a pilgrim com, where I'm really, um, it's, it's, it's not, we, we ended up very cultural in our conversation this hour. Mm-hmm. It's a little less cultural than that. And it's really about the intersection of faith, fantasy, and fiction, where uh, I look at literature and and then talk about the ideas of, you know, living life or, or Christian thought or, or cultural engagement that come in those conversations. And so it's quite a, there's, like, over the years, you gather a lot. There's, I think, 950 blog posts there, so you're probably going to find... Whoa. <laughs> whatever you're looking for there um, and it obviously it began as as more specifically as C.S. Lewis and Inkling's blog and it kind of has extended out from there over the years so um, is yeah there, so is there any plans to make your blog post of, into a book of some sort yeah so I've been thinking about this in you know I haven't approached any publishers yet but I I'm cons- so if if Netflix really is reintroducing their children's and youth division with a Narnia series. Uh, I I probably will release basically a Pilgrim and Narnia, like Narnia Pilgrimages to Narnia or something like that. Mm-hmm. Basically, a book of kind of you know thoughtful uh, pieces about you know living a Narnian kind of life in in the real world. So that's. That's probably so. That would be next year, 2021. We'll know by you know this September whether or not they're going to pull it off. But I think that's their intention. So I finished a, my PhD thesis, so that there'll be an academic book come come out of that as well. So so the folks listening want to check you out. They should just search for a Pilgrim in Narnia. Yeah, pilgrimnarnia.com, and you know, given the way things are today, there's you know a whole bunch of stuff will come up, including. I think my blog is illegally reproduced in at least three countries. Awesome. Uh, and for teachers, uh, one of the online paper mills uses my blog fairly frequently. So, oh, wow. so I would encourage teachers to check out my work <laughs> so okay. they know what their students are doing. So, All right. Yeah. Thank you. If you're still in a Brother Jack mood, you should give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile 134 a listen, where musician Phil Keggy talks about his C.S. Lewis-inspired album Beyond Nature. And if you're interested in the recent theological tug-of-war between traditional and progressive Christianity, you might check out the That to Which We Are Tethered series we started back on episode 184, dealing so far with the controversies of Richard Rohr, Rob Bell, relativism, Darwinism, 
and even eugenics. In the corner back by the woodpile is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye.